0: Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark message podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. So we are walking through Matthew, as is our style. We are in Matthew 19. So if you have your Bibles, open up there. Uh, We're in a sermon series talking about unexpected, talking about kingdom living, in an earthly world reality. And so what does this look like? Okay, we want to be followers of Jesus, but what does this really look like? I'm going to live for another kingdom, but I'm doing it in the middle of this one. You know, to to some degree, we're all a bunch of Daniels. We're all a bunch of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednegoes. We are not natives to Babylon. We are aliens, and we are living to a different value system, a different uh, code of conduct, because this is in our home and we're going to live in a way that honors him, even though we're probably going to find ourselves at odds with the world around us. And that just sounds kind of fun at times, doesn't it? That just sounds kind of fun. Instead of going with the flow, I'm I'm kind of one of those, like if there were rules, I wanted to break them. Or I just wanted to see how strong somebody was really going to uphold that rule. And uh, even in church ministry, I love hearing about there's a term we use as sacred cows, you know, where it's like, oh, that's a sacred cow. You can't do that because our church has long held that that, you just don't do that. And it's not a doctrinal issue, not a moral issue, nothing like that. It's just a sacred cow. I went to a church, uh, my first ministry, and they said, you can't put the drums underneath the cross. Don't tell me that because guess where I want to move the drums? And I just love barbecue and a really good sacred cow. They smell good on the altar of sacrifice. But we live to a different set of rules, a different conduct where it's gonna find ourselves at odds that if we really are gonna be kingdom living, it's gonna be an unexpected kind of response from the world. It's gonna look different and it should. And if I didn't tick you off last week and offend you, it's a new Sunday. It's a new Sunday, and if you're opening up and you read, you know, even just the little headlines that they kind of put to break out Scripture there to make it a little easier for us, those are not in the original. This is uh, something we added later just to help us. It talks about Jesus' encounter with the rich young man, like, oh, here's another pastor talking about money. Here we go. Well, we are, but I want to throw out some statistics first just so we can all know and understand we're all in the same boat, okay? And don't feel guilty about these. Don't feel guilty about these. Guilt is the worst motivator you could ever have in your life. You know, with anything. Oh, I know I need to read my Bible more and we feel guilty about that. That's not gonna get you to read your Bible more. Oh, I know I need to pray. Oh, I know I need to do this. Guilt is a horrible motivator. But just to understand the context. So just strictly economic statistics, financially, so we understand that we're all the rich young ruler here. If you live, economic statistic, if you live in the bottom 10% of the United States, which means that you wouldn't make more than $15,000 a year. If you make $15,000 a year, household income, you live in the top 10% of the world. The average income in our world is $2,200 a year. Okay, And we all feel horrible now, don't we? Oh, thanks, pastor. Make me feel bad and da, da, da. So just a couple things. A household income of just $40,000 a year in our country, you live in the top 2% of the world. It's the top 2% of the world. That's where we're at. And I had all kinds of statistics. You could ask the pastors. I had them all written up on my board and different things. And like, I was like, but what are we trying to do? Now, a lot of times we can hear those things and we do feel guilt and we feel bad. And it's like, oh man, especially when you go on overseas mission trips and you see how other people live and then the, the really gut check and the teeth kicked in kind of moment is when you see the amount of joy that these people have in their lives when they have nothing. To which I always look at the people I'm on the mission trip with and say, maybe their joy and their possessions, that's not tied together. Maybe their joy is coming from something else where you can live with almost nothing and still have a joy because again, our joy is not of this world. So how can we have joy in those moments like that? Because our joy isn't of this world. It's kingdom living. And so, but a couple things I do want to say in that context. Acts 17, 26 says that God determined the time and the boundaries of our lives. We've talked about that before. I didn't pick 1985, nor would I have picked that time to be born, and we're not getting into the music and the mullets, but I don't like either one. We've already had that discussion, but I didn't pick that. And I didn't pick that I got to be born in America. I didn't ask the Lord. We weren't up there before I was, you know, as he's creating me and knitting me and saying, hey, what sounds good to you? I would have went way more tropical, way more tropical, like I wanted snow to be a myth in my life, you know, like ice, ice. I wanna be like a Jamaican bobsledder, ice. What is, I, I'm gonna go take a hot bath, like if you know the movie, anyway. But God determines that. And here we are in the United States, living in the top 10 to 2% of the world. But go to the parable of the talents. The master gives one servant one, one servant three, and another servant five. And we're not given in scripture any idea why he gave differently to different servants. For some reason, beyond our understanding, he distrusted that servant with five. And so don't look at it as guilt. Look at it as an opportunity that the God of all creation trusts you with what he has given you. And so obviously there's a purpose in that. And I don't know what that is. That's gonna be different. I'm not gonna be up here to tell you what you should do with your economic status, nope. But for some reason, God trusted us with that. And he appointed our time and he appointed our boundaries. And and I'm gonna believe that he has reason for it. And that's what we wanna talk about this morning. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? Such a Nick thing to say, right? Are you going to be good? Oh, I'll be good. Follow the rules. Which ones? Might have said those before. And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. How are we doing so far? (laughs) Honoring your mother and father, loving your neighbor, I'm out. And the young man said to him, all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And then Peter said in reply, See, we, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, You who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, you got to put that part in there, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Thanks, Nick. You just told us we're all at least in the top 10% of the world and that it is impossible for a rich man like a camel to go through the eye of a needle. This sermon has sounded really good at the direction we're going here. And so you have this rich young man walking along and he's walking up to Jesus and he wants to have a conversation with him. And I love the stupid questions I ask God. And I love that he accounts for my stupidity when he considered my calling. Love that. And the same is true for you. When God called you, when God wants to lead and guide your life, he already factored in your stupidity. Is that not the most comforting thing in the world? That God knows exactly how dumb I can be and it's not a shock to him? I love that. Maybe that's just me because I'm really stupid at times and that really helps. But he's coming along and he says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Well, theologically, we all know, you know, hey, faith is not by works. Faith, you can't be saved by your works. And, but I love that Jesus will still go down the road of a dumb question because he wants to capture his heart. For some reason, this rich young man thinks that he has to do something more than what he has already done. To inherit eternal life. And Jesus said, All right, I'll walk that road with you. Let's see where this ends up. See, Jesus knows the man's heart. Jesus knows what he has done, what he is dealing with. He, he already knows all of this. He's omniscient. We we get that. And the young man even says, You know, I've kept all of these since I was a kid, since I was young, I've kept those. What do I still lack? And and part of me thinks, well, you're a liar. You haven't kept those. But to really think about it, if you go back to Paul in Philippians 3, when he was talking about his own life, he said in Philippians 3 verse 6, righteousness under the law, blameless. That makes sense. Paul could look at those commandments and their understanding of what it means to fulfill those commandments, blameless. So this rich young ruler could say, yes, according to those commandments and how we live them out and our interpretation of them, I'm blameless in that. I've done exactly what you have asked. Now, is there interpretation of some of these off? Well, yes, we've seen that multiple times. Jesus keeps saying, you have heard it said, but I tell you, He, he raises that bar. So there is something different. But in this rich young ruler's eyes, I've kept the commandments. But Jesus knows his heart. And Jesus knows our hearts. But do we know our own heart? See, he knew, the rich young man knew that he kept all these, but he asked, what do I still lack? You told me to keep the commandments. I asked which ones. You labeled them all off, and I've done that. But there is still something in him that he knew, but I'm lacking. I don't have something. There's something in me that I'm lacking in this. So Jesus knows his heart. Jesus knows our heart. But do we know our own hearts? Have we taken time to really look in the mirror at our own lives and look at our lives and say, what do I lack in my life? Do I see the fruit of the spirit in my life? Do I see those nine characteristics or what void is there in my walk with Jesus? Again, we're not reading this and elbowing the person or thinking about the, oh, I know them, I know what their economic status is like. No, no, no. we're reading the word of God as a mirror and looking at our own life. What lack, what need do I have in my own life? Where is there a void in my walk with Jesus? I love what C.S. Lewis said. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then most probably, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. See, we're gonna have lack, we're gonna have needs, we're gonna have a void in our life that nothing in this world is gonna be able to fulfill. And I think this rich young ruler was dealing with that situation. I mean, he, he had a good economic status, we know that. He lived a good moral lifestyle. And if you look at those commandments, it's pretty much the whole you know, second tablet of the 10 commandments. The first tablet kind of deals with your relationship with God. The second one deals with more the horizontal relationships that we have with individuals. And so in the world's eyes and how he deals with the individuals around him, it's a good moral person. And our community, our culture, our country is full of people that have good economic status, you know, that will never hear the gospel preached to them as they need to walk into a a food pantry or a food kitchen, live good moral lifestyle. They're not out, you know, doing all the horrible things. There's, There's a lot of great atheists that are financially sound and live good moral lifestyles. And the church does a really good job of trying to reach the poor, the lost, the hurting, and I understand that. But how are we reaching the lost that don't even know that they're lost, that are living good lives? And sometimes that can even infiltrate inside of the church. We live a good moral lifestyle. No, we have a massive need that nothing here can fulfill, as Lewis said. So we all have an absence in our life. We all have a void. We all have a need that Jesus wants to fulfill and our hearts. We all have that. The question is, do we know our own heart to see that? It might be an absence of joy. Might be an absence of peace. Might be an absence of mercy. I don't know what that is with you. I know what it is with me. And I'm not telling you people, you guys are messed up. I'm not telling you my problems. And sometimes it changes. What my need was when I was a teenager is different than what my need was now. And as I continue to grow and and Jesus keeps stepping into my life and, and filling these voids, all it does is reveal not how much I have of him, but how much more I need of him. That he keeps just pulling back the veil in my life and keeps showing, this is where I want to be in your life. This is a void. This is a lack that you keep holding from me, and that's where I want to be. And then I stand there, and I have to ask myself, am I going to surrender this to Jesus, or do I want to hold on to that and try to find fulfillment in the world around me? So we all have that absence. We all have that need in us that Jesus wants to fulfill. And even the rich young ruler saw that. And I love that. So, even though he was asking, What what deed do I need to do? Jesus was able to turn the conversation. And so he even acknowledged, Well, I still have something lacking in my life. I think when we come to Jesus in a true honesty, that's what he wants. Not with the mask on and feeling good about ourselves and, Lord, you're so blessed to have me. But when we come with an open, transparent brokenness and saying, Lord, I need you. I think that's when Jesus says, now I can work. Now I can work. When we have no other options, no other hope, no other, that's when he wants to work in our lives. But as we keep trying to hold on to everything else, he's a gentleman. You're not going to kick open the doors. And as long as you think you have your life together and whatever you find your identity in, if that's where you find hope in, I'll let you just keep walking down that road. But if you're willing to surrender and to give that up and find true fulfillment in Jesus, that's when he wants to work in our life. And so Jesus challenges them, all right? You, you feel like there's a lack in your life? Let's talk about that. If you would be perfect, and some of us hear that, our type A personalities, and I got to be perfect, and we struggle with that, that we do anything wrong, and our value and our self-worth just plummets because we did one thing wrong. It's feel like it's almost like the 12-step program, you know, like a Alcoholics Anonymous where we, we were clean for so long and then we did something wrong, we got to start right back over. And that's a real struggle. I don't struggle with that, thank the Lord. But I have some loved ones that do. And that, and that lie that I think Satan uses that, oh, you're a Christian, you got to be perfect now. You can't mess up at all. And the moment that you do, your salvation's lost and gone, and you have no hope, and you're just... It's like, good night a living. You just leave me alone in a dark room by myself, I'll beat myself up. I don't need anybody else's help. So what's Jesus talking about? We have to be perfect? See, so if you look at the original language, it's the same that's used in the first chapter of James. Perfect just means mature, complete. That if you want to mature in your faith, if you want a complete faith, yeah, there's still some stuff we need to do. And the same is true for us. That if we want to continue walking and have a mature, complete faith, there's always going to be a next step that Jesus has for us. I don't care if you're eight or 108. If you got a pulse, Jesus is not done with you yet. And there's still something in your heart that he wants as a heart surgeon to cut out He still wants to identify that void, that need in your life. And he still wants to move and be that fulfillment for you. That there's still something that you're holding on to. Ain't nobody arrived yet. If you're on this side of glory, God is still working. And there's still something that we need to hand off and hand over to him. So Jesus is saying, all right, you want to be mature? You want to be complete? Let's talk. And so as Jesus fulfills the voids in our lives, it's moving us along to maturity in our faith we call it Christ-likeness, that we want him to just keep keep working in my life until you see yourself in me. That's what that whole testing of your faith that produces endurance means in James chapter 1, where it's a a silversmith term, where they would take a raw hunk of silver and they boil it up and the impurities would rise and they would scoop the impurities off and they'd let it cool down. Then they'd boil it back up, get some of those impurities to rise, scoop them off, let it cool back down. And so God is going to put our life through a whole lot of fire and cool down and fire and cool down. Why? Because he wants the impurities of our life to rise to the top. And he wants to scoop those out of our life. Now, obviously, we have modern technology to know when silver is really pure and all that stuff. But back in the day, you know what they did? The silversmith would look down, and if he could see his reflection in the silver, then it's pure that God wants to send your life through the furnace multiple times until what? When he looks into your life and he sees himself. It's not about us, it's about him and our lives. Are they reflecting Jesus? And he's gonna step into those voids and he's gonna step into those needs because he wants to move us along in our maturity. And so he says, all right, you wanna mature in your faith? You wanna talk about this? And he looks at this rich young ruler And he says, go sell everything and give it away. Well, waiting, no. (laughs) (laughs) That command isn't for everyone, nor is that command for no one. And I think there's been times in church history that we have missed the understanding here and, and you have that whole like uh, uh, asceticism, um, it's like a monastic movement where a bunch of these monks and Christians, you know, it's like, oh, we can't live in the world. And with all these worldly things and they sell everything, they live in, in intentional poverty and they live away from the world. And, and the problem is, is sin still follows them. Why? Because sin's in their heart, not in their stuff. And they try to get away and detach themselves from all of that to try to, you know, not even just make themselves look more spiritual, which is some, which is uh, still shows the need that they need Jesus. But even just they're an intentional heartfelt, like, I, I don't want to be tied to these possessions. So I'm going to get rid of all of them. The problem is poverty doesn't produce nor does it prove our spirituality. Your bank account doesn't, one way or the other, doesn't tell me if you're a good Christian whatsoever. It's not there. And so sometimes we can take this too far and think, okay, this is the command given to me. And there are commands in scripture that are given to everyone. And there's one in here, just not here. And so we read that and we think, oh, we're all a bunch of horrible Christians because we live in the top 10% of the world. And none of us are going to go and sell everything and give it all to the poor and follow Jesus. Well, we can't even do that anymore. Why? Because Jesus isn't on earth walking in his earthly ministry. So we have to look at the principle behind this command. What I do love is the lack or the need that was in the young man's life. It wasn't in something that he didn't have. I know that's a double negative. All you grammar Nazis are just loving this right now. right? So the lack in the young man's life wasn't in something that he didn't have. His lack is what was in what he did have. How can you have a lack and have something? The same way when we talk about Jesus emptying himself, he took on something. See, what he had was causing his lack. And in verse 22, and after this conversation, he went away when he heard this. Like, could you imagine he heard this in this, the look of not like excitement. Oh, there's an opportunity to follow Jesus, but... Sorrow hit him. Oh, I have to do that to follow you? That's what you're calling me to do? I can't do it. And he walks away. And a lot of us look at him and, rich young ruler. Doesn't even know what he walked away from. How many times do we walk away from Jesus? How many times do we find him in the exact same position? Maybe not with our possessions or with money, but there's something That he says, hey, I want you to give this up. But Lord, I can't. I have to, That I can't do it. And there's so many times and even in our own lives that we do the exact same thing. We walk away from Jesus sorrowful because we had great whatever. And in this young man's case, great possessions. His possessions possessed him. And the same is true for us. Might be in our stuff. It might be in our bank account number where we feel secure and feel taken care of. It's easy to say God provides when money's coming in. Does he not provide when money's not, though? And Maybe it has nothing even to do with economics, that, we, that the possessions that we have might be in identity, in our job, or in our family. We can use anything. And create that to be an idol that we're going to put above Jesus. That we have more value and need for that than even Jesus. And I don't know if you know, but he doesn't like competition. He's not okay with that. That whatever we're even flirting with, trying to put on the same level of Jesus, that's the very thing that he's going to call for us to go sell and give away. That's the thing he's going to have us walk away from. Because it's easy, right? It's kind of like, it's easy to throw a party for my friends and invite my friends over. What I'll never do is invite the people I don't like over. So if you're sitting here thinking, I've never been invited by Nick, take the hint. <laughs> no, i <I'm teasing. laughs> This is one of those kind of love your enemies moments. You know, we talk about, oh, uh, look at everything that I'm doing for the Lord. I'm sacrificing for him. Great. And, and those are good things, but he's still interested in what you're not willing to give up, what you're not willing to sacrifice. Okay, good, it's, I, I love that you've done this, Nick, what else? We got, still gotta talk. You're not complete, you're not mature, you haven't arrived yet, I'm still working in your life. And the very thing that I'll hold on to, Lord, you can have anything else, but I want that. <laughs> he wants the exact same thing that you want. Because it proves, am I truly your Lord and Savior or am I not? What are you willing to give up and to sacrifice for him? And what's hard, the principle here, this is what's really hard about this, especially in the body of Christ. God may challenge and require you to give up something for the sake of living for him, for his kingdom, that he still allows for someone else to have. Well, why do I have to give that up, but that person doesn't? Oh, well, they must, not, they must not be spiritually mature then. I'll pray for them, that they'd be more like me. Follow me as I follow Christ. Again, in the house rules, there are certain things that all of us abide to, but there's going to be things that he has you walk away from that he's going to lead somebody right into. And I love the two stories of the tax collectors So you got Levi, who is probably the richest disciple of them all, who became Matthew, writing this. I wonder how he felt writing this, you know, like, oh man, we're getting serious here. He was a tax collector, has an encounter with Jesus, and he never collects taxes again. Jesus leads him completely out of that. Then you got a wee little man, Zacchaeus, tax collector, has an encounter with Jesus, and he goes right back to collecting taxes but he changes how he does it. So is Zacchaeus less spiritual than Matthew? Not at all. Both obedient to what God has called them to do. And the same for us. The thing that God is asking you to give up might not be an issue for someone else. So why do they get to and I don't? It's not an issue for them. It's not a God to them. It's not an idol. It's not something that's trying to sabotage our relationship together, but it is for you. And it's going to be vice versa, because there's something else in that person's life. And that's why we can't look horizontally at each other and compare each other and think, oh, I'm, I'm self-righteousness is a very real thing. And we look at one another and we think, oh, if they could just be like me. Or we look at other people and we idolize them too much, like, oh, I wish I could pray like that person. God hears them all the same. There's not some secret formula, and it definitely has nothing to do with the title, People, oh, you know, pastor, will you pray for me? Well, yeah, I'll pray for you. But if you're saying that because you think I got like some like red phone in my office that's straight to, nah. Now it'd be cool with some nukes and stuff. Like I couldn't be president. Not <laughs> would scare the world. Just turn them on so they know we'll use them. No, there's no direct line that your access to the father is the exact same as mine. And we can't compare each other and we can't look at one another. And when we see God moving and working in someone's life, and they are radically giving up something like that, don't don't feel guilt. Don't criticize them. Rejoice with them. Just like we want other people to rejoice with us when God is moving and working in our life. That's hard, because a lot of times we want to almost kind of attack one another. Oh, look at that person over there and look what they're giving up for the Lord. No, they just think they're hot stuff and da, da, da. But ooh, I know about them though. I went to high school with them. And... Is that how you do that? I don't even know. <laughs> I'm just making it up as we go here. But we're real prone to do that. And instead of rejoicing the work of God And as Jesus is filling voids and calling us into a deeper walk with one another, instead of rejoicing and encouraging that, a lot of times we can be the ones to condemn that and try to inhibit that and try to squelch that, that we are the very thing that is quenching the Spirit of God, maybe in our own lives, but even trying to quench it in somebody else's life. Those are bold words, and that's really hard. But the principle remains, and understand that, Not asking, hey, if you want to encourage one another, hey, what's God asking you to do? Yeah, share that. But it might be different. And that's okay. Because no snowflake is the same, no fingerprints the same, and no relationship with the Lord is exactly the same. That how he moves and works, and and when I think of Jesus and how he's my Lord and Savior, the the attributes and the characteristics of him that resonate well with me, might not be the same to you. And that's Okay. That's okay. But so many of us are at risk of an immature faith because we don't want to forsake the very thing that Jesus is telling us to walk away from. Not as a test of maturity to one another, but a test of trust and obedience to Jesus. And it's hard. It's hard to argue with the guy that gave all, to say, you know what, I'm not willing to do the same thing as you, Jesus. That's a hard argument to have. Jesus, don't you know what I have to give up if you're asking me to do this? Do you know how this is gonna affect my life? That's really not a good argument with the guy that hung on the cross. Not a good argument to have. I don't know about you, but this sinner has it all the time. He's calling you right now, you better answer that. (laughs) Yeah. Send Jesus to voice message, see how that works out. So many of us are at risk of an immature faith because we will not forsake what Jesus calls us to give up. Our depth of faith only comes from dependence on Jesus. Our depth of faith, our maturity, that completeness only comes with our dependence on Jesus. And so this rich young man walks away, and Jesus turns to his disciples. He has a little conversation talking about, all right, let's talk about this. this let's talk about rich men entering the kingdom. And in verse, what is it, 25, they're greatly astonished when they hear these things that with difficulty. And it's easier for this camel to go through the eye of a needle, and there's all kinds of interpretive things of what this could mean. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, uh, some believe that the eye of the needle was the, like in a gate, they would have they could open up the full gate when you know, uh, it was open. But when closing time was there and they would shut that gate, they would still open a little bit that you could still get a, a camel through, but you'd have to take off all the possessions off of the camel so they could squeeze through. That's one interpretive way to see that. Another one is in Greek and Aramaic, the word for camel and rope are actually the same. Consonants. Uh, the vowels are just slightly different. And so some would say, oh no, that's a transcription error. It really meant a, a thick knotted rope. It's easier, you know, for uh, a thick knotted rope to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get in the kingdom. Pick whichever one you like. I want to look at the principle here. And so when he's saying, these two verses. It's difficulty for a rich man to enter the kingdom and it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They're greatly astonished and they're saying, well then who can be saved then? We're kind of asking ourselves the same question then. What are you trying to say here, pastor? You open with those first statistics and then you read something like that, what are we trying to say? And they're greatly astonished because even in that culture then, and it definitely is influencing our culture now, Inside the church is that mentality that if you have much, that was a sign of God's blessing on your life, and if you have little, oh ye of little faith. It's almost like an early prosperity gospel type mentality, and sometimes that's hard, and it does infiltrate us. when When something happened that's good, maybe you get a raise, you get a promotion. It's like, oh, God is just blessing me. Does that mean if you didn't get it, you don't have the blessing of God then? that if somebody doesn't have a high paying kind of job that they don't walk in the blessings of the Lord? If you can't tell my tone and my approach to the prosperity gospel, not a big fan. And I think of Job. And uh, Job 1.21 says that the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. That if he wants to give into your life, Or if he wants to take away in your life, he's the one that blesses. And sometimes the greatest blessings that we have are not in what God gives. Some of our greatest blessings are in what God takes away from us. And that's a bold prayer. And when you stand before the Lord and say, Lord, whatever is keeping me from a deeper relationship with you, take that from me. Take that from my hands. I, I don't want anything to do with that. And so they're greatly astonished, thinking, who can be saved? And on our own, it's impossible. This rich man can't buy enough, can't do enough, can't nothing. It's impossible on his own, but it's not possible with God. And I don't think it means just because you have a, a, a fat account in a bank somewhere that you can't enter the kingdom of heaven, because then we have to answer for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all rich men, David rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, rich man, Barnabas, rich man, Matthew, we're studying, I don't know if you, Matthew, rich man, are they not in the kingdom? Or is there something deeper here what's going on? Eternity is not determined by our economic status, but our faith in Jesus. So whatever Jesus has given you in your life hasn't, has more to do with what are you gonna do to honor him with that. For some reason, that's what he trusted you with. I know I will never be a rich man. One, I'm not smart enough. <laughs> I, my wife barely trusts me with $5. I haven't seen a 20 in years. She don't trust me. The Lord trusts me more than she trusts me, right? Because she knows what I'll just spend it on. McRib, no. <laughs> Somebody emailed me, what's the fascination with the McRib? I don't even know. But for some reason, God has trusted us with this. And I know what God cannot trust me with. Because if I was going to be blessed financially, I would probably be on a highway to hell. Real fast, real quick. And I would do nothing. You know, you say that to act spiritually. Oh, if I won the lottery, I would do so much kingdom impact. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. I don't trust myself with it, and I know the Lord doesn't trust me with it. And so Jesus, at the very end, he addresses his disciples specifically, and then he turns to everyone generally, and he's showing that in kingdom living, in kingdom living, to receive is to leave everything that we put our hope in above Jesus, that if you really want to receive, because Peter's asking that question, what about us? We've left everything. What are we going to have? Me is what Jesus says, you have me, what greater thing could there be? And so if we want to receive, even in this life, this kingdom living, what does that mean? To leave it all. Does that mean go and sell everything? Some of you, it might be. Does that mean completely changing jobs? Some of you, that might be. Or you might be like Zacchaeus, go right back into your job. But your identity's not in your position, your hope, the power that you have. All of those things are just a platform to make a kingdom impact. So the question isn't, how much do I have to give up to be a follower of Jesus? It's kind of the same question when we ask, like, how close to sin can I get without falling off? You know, wrong question. But what am I willing to keep that risks sabotaging my relationship with Jesus. Look at your life. Look at the things that you have. Let it be possessions. Let it be position. Let it be everything that encompasses your life. What am I willing to keep that is at risk of sabotaging my life with Jesus? That's what you need to give up. That's a bold prayer. And I believe we have a bold God that will answer that bold prayer. It's going to look different for all of us. And it's not a New Year's resolution, but a commitment to the Lord to say, I want to walk as close as I can with you. And whatever would cause a hindrance in that, take it from me. And I'm going to walk away. Are you willing to surrender and submit your life to that kind of walk with Jesus? Father, we love you. We trust you. Even when we don't want to trust you, Lord, I pray that we would step out in faith, knowing that whatever you lead and guide, whatever you call from our life to walk away from, to give up, to let go of, let your will be done in our life, knowing that it is better than anything that we could do of our own. So identify in every one of our hearts and our minds what that is and call us, fill us with your Holy Spirit, draw us to you, call us into a deeper walk with you. Knowing that if we're in your will, walking with you, hand in hand, that is the blessings that we are looking for in our life. Give us that kind of faith, Lord. And continue to lead us individually, lead us and guide us as a church, that we would make an impact in this kingdom for your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said.